Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Autumn Schaefer, assistant professor of public relations in the School of Journalism and Communication. Her research seeks to address social, theoretical, and practical issues related to public health promotion and social issues advocacy. Schaefer's principal focus is sexual health, although she has also studied messages about tobacco, the HPV vaccination, nutrition, diabetes, and eating disorders. She recently secured a National Institute for Transportation and Communities grant for her project, Engaging Youth to Increase Their Transportation System Support, Understanding, and, U and Use. Schaefer joined the UO faculty in 2015. Thank you, Autumn, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. So tell us a bit about your background and how that led you to this career in PR, communications, and journalism in the academy. Uh, well, first of all, I've always loved school. I've probably <laughs> loved school before I even was in school. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, education and learning new things. Um, I come from a somewhat impoverished background. I'm a first-generation college student. My parents were, were very much supportive of education and believed in it and encouraged me in that way. Um, we, uh, there was a short time even that we were homeless when I was about eight years old. Um, and I just always felt school was like this place where you know, I just, I felt like, oh, I love this place. I feel so great here. It's just happy and, you know, all these <laughs> things to do. And um, so I've always been a bit of a nerd. Um, and I actually was a big math person. I, I love math. Um, I was a mathlete in high school and mm. I knew I was going to go to college. Um, and I was originally planning on being um, a chemistry major mm. with a mm. math minor. Um, but I took a required communication class, like many people do their freshman year. And I thought, ooh, I, I kind of <laughs> like this. I'm going to take another one. And then all of a sudden, I was a communication major, you know, just kind of <laughs> snowballed. And I fell in love with this idea of like learning about how, how we talk, how we interpret things differently. Um, how can the way that I say something change the meaning that that has for you? And, and um, I just loved it. And I went um, for my undergrad and I went straight to get my master's in it as well um, and just uh, continued to just love it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what brought me. So what, what, what led you to health communication in particular? Yeah, so um, when I was getting my master's, you know, learning more about research and, you know, what you can find out through some of these things and how you can have an impact, um, I was, you know, think, like we all do, thinking about my personal background. And, and I had had some friends and family um, that were involved in substance abuse, and that was something that I felt like, gosh, I, I, you know, I wish there was something I could do about that, and how could communication be a part of that? And I originally was really interested in different types of health campaigns. Um, my master's thesis was focusing on tobacco um, reduction, uh, specifically with teens, and so that's how it started for me, it's just really having a passion about wanting to make a difference. So one of the things that you hear when you talk to people about communication is strategic communication. Yeah. So what is that? Okay. Well, you know, um, th something I explain to my students is there are different types of communication purposes, especially sometimes we just want to pass along information and that's great and that can be really important and necessary part of, of any type of health campaign or something. But sometimes we need to do more than just give information. We want to promote a certain outcome. So we want to encourage people to get a mammogram, for instance, to see if they, um, to possibly detect cancer earlier. So for some, you know, good purpose. And so, and, and sometimes, you know, we found that just telling people about 
hey, here's you should get a mammogram or giving them information about where to get it isn't enough. They, they need more strategic communication that promotes, to targets them specifically. Like, hey, you know, you have this, you know, communicating specifically with people that have a fear about the results, for instance, and then being strategic about what you tell those people and, and how you make sure that you explain, like, here's, here's what would happen if you got this result. Here's the number of people that get this result. And sort of just meeting people with the information that they need, but understanding that um, sometimes through strategic communication, we have a purpose behind the communication mm -hmm. of getting people to think or do a certain thing. Interesting, so tell us about, uh, to, to, to uh, elaborate, tell us about one of these uh, health communication research projects that you've either completed or are working on now or are thinking of working on. Tell us about one of those. Great, yeah, so um, a big project that I am just in the middle of and is launching out to the public this summer is a collaboration with OHSU and their um, Night Cancer Center. Mm -hmm. So um, they have been planning something for years now and so I'm, I'm joining the team um, a little bit late but still happy to join. Um, they are um, have an initiative called the Healthy Organ Project where they will be um, trying to reach all Oregonians and starting with um, the northern Oregon coast to um, get them to participate by donating a sample of their spit and for genetic testing people will get those for genetic cancer risk testing people will get those results back um, and also they have genetic counselors on hand and patient navigators to sort of help people for the very few people who do get a positive result um, but in addition to the healthy in, in addition to the genetic testing component they also have a series of surveys where you can um, see about how does your nutrition, your sort of dietary habits line up with cancer risk? How does your sleep line up with cancer risk? And they have several other things. So they're trying to help Oregonians understand um, their genetic risk for cancer and then also their lifestyle um, risk for cancer. And so my part is to basically help explain to people, you know, why would you want to be in this program? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the benefits of signing up? What are the risks of signing up? Mm -hmm. And sort of doing some health communication to get people interested in participating or interested in at least learning more. So say a little yeah. bit more about that. I mean, I could imagine yeah. uh, I'm a person who has an anxiety. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm a 56-year-old person. Um, you know, I could possibly be at risk for cancer, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really want to know that. Yeah. yeah. So how are you going to help me to overcome my resistance? Yeah, that is such a great question because this, um, we often find that in detection when we're trying to get people to do a behavior that's going to detect something they don't want to know about right. or you know don't want so that's one of the toughest sort of behaviors to get people to do um, but you can help alleviate that by helping them envision what is the outcome going to be in terms of if this bad if i get this bad news what will happen and that's in terms of building in social supports so having these genetic count letting them know like we won't just give you your results and let you like stew on it, people will be there to explain what do these mean, you know, how can you access health care, you know, what do you need to do. So letting people know that um, if they get bad news that people will be there for them. So letting them know there's some social and like system supports can often alleviate some of those fears. Mm -hmm. So um, wh why do you need research to do this kind of work? Why is research important? What's yeah. why, why do we need to do that? Yeah, so part of what I'm doing, for instance, with this project and what I do with a lot of health communication projects is I first start out with research about who the target public is and often that will be through focus groups or interviews or some other qualitative method where I'm getting to know the people that I'm going to be 
creating messages, targeting. So um, what do they care about? What do they need to hear? What are their values? Why, what would, why would these, this be a benefit to them? What are the barriers they're experiencing? So, you know, if you're working on a new, on a exercise campaign, for instance, you need to know, are the people in my, in the community I'm going to be working with, do they have sidewalks? You know, do they have time? So, you know, so getting to know your specific target public through research is just so, so important and changes completely the direction of the messages that you would have. And then the second part of that that I really enjoy doing is more experimental research where we then create some theory-based messages sort of with clues from that formative research that we learned about people from focus groups or interviews. And we see, we in fact test some theories like, so this theory says if you emphasize how to overcome barriers. And this theory says, no, you should focus on all the benefits. And so we can kind of also contribute to the larger scholarly knowledge mm -hmm. um, by testing the effects of these messages and finding out, wow, this, this really works well in these populations, but this message seems to work better with these populations. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really great. Um, and, uh, and then obviously you can evaluate the whole program at the end. So I know that you, one thing that's important to you is including undergraduate students in your research projects. So why is that important for you? Uh, well, you know, I felt like I had professors who included me even as an undergraduate and it just, you know, really sparked more of my passion for learning and also understanding what is it that we professors do. You know, I, I bring up research every day in my classes and let students know, like, these are the things I'm working on. And um, I have one undergraduate right now who's doing a research credit with me and she's work, working to support a condom use campaign that the health marketing folks at University of Oregon are um, designing. And so, um, you know, she may not go in, go further with academia, but she'll get a better understanding when she moves on to her career about, um, you know, how you communicate with people and what's important to know so that you can build good messages. Um, and I mean, the undergraduates are wonderful. One, one of my favorite publications was with, was with an undergraduate that I had recently. And, she had a passion about um, sex trafficking, el eliminating sex trafficking, and it just, she wanted to, her whole career to be about that. Um, and so I said, okay, let's, let's do something, let's think of something. And we ended up doing this great study looking at um, how sex trafficking uh, victims and survivors, their stories are told in the media and whether there's a story versus more of a, non-story version, like a non-narrative version, and how that impacts the way people receive those stories mm -hmm. and whether they want mm -hmm. to share those share those communications and support victim services. Um, and in fact, it, it did make a difference. So, um, it, you know, and it was great. So I felt like I was contributing to her career passion. You know, she gave me a great idea. She was so passionate about working on it. And also we were able to send some of these results to some of the big human trafficking um, NGOs and let them know because they do this type of messaging all the time. So it just felt like everyone was benefiting from it. And mm. it's just nice to be involved with something like that. Mm, cool. So um, you, a, a related thing that you do is work on sexual consent education. Tell us about that research and what you learned. Yeah, so I, that's a topic I come back to quite a bit. Um, and so one of the big projects from, from that that I did recently was a campaign called Define Your Line. And so with that, um, again, it started out like I told you before, we actually had uh, 11 focus groups with undergraduates. And this was right about the time that the White House had issued um, a statement um, directing campuses to do more on this issue. And so they, we were originally thinking we would do some type of bystander 
intervention mm -hmm. where we were helping students understand how to be better bystanders um, or active bystanders. And um, after these focus groups, though, we realized you know, students actually don't really understand what a consensual situation is. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of variance on what they thought was or wasn't consent and a lot of confusion. And so we thought, well, we're gonna have a hard time helping them to, you know, intervene in situations if they don't really know when a non-consensual situation is occurring. So we actually took a step back and said, first we need to do some sexual consent education and help students understand what is and isn't sexual consent. And so we formed a group of 25 students on an advisory committee. We made, we had the support of the university, so we were able to sort of get athletes and LGBTQ folks and um, fraternity and sorority folks, sort of kind of a community that trying to represent some of the major groups on campus. R religious um, groups were involved as well. And um, we sort of worked with them to create a campaign and decide like what are the tactics that are gonna reach students? What are the things that you think they need to hear? And also drawing on, and I had a, a research partner who's at Syracuse now, um, drawing on you know academic literature about the types of things that are likely to be effective. And we launched this campaign for a year Students did tablings, they talked to classes, we had a website, all kind, you know, just multifaceted. Um, and our evaluation of it showed that in fact we were able to change the campus climate in terms of having a better understanding about consent, um, being more willing to verbalize consent, ask for consent. So it had some really positive effects um, and we've since published it in a couple of different places and three other campuses have adopted a version of it as well. So it's, it's exciting to see it kind of continue and, and I hope to keep working on that issue. It's, it's something that I'm definitely passionate about. That's cool. So um, this work that you do um, ha has you interface often with UO's Office of Health Promotion. Yeah. So say a little bit about the work you do with them and how you help them and how, how you collaborate oh, with them. Oh gosh, and they help me so much too. Um, there's wonderful people here on campus working to help keep our students healthy. Um, they're just amazing, the work that they do. And um, a lot of our relationship has actually been at them as clients for my, my classes. So mm -hmm. if I teach a class where we're um, learning how to plan a strategic campaign, I will often have the health, I'll go to health marketing and I'll say, hey, what do you guys have coming up this year that you're, you know, think that you're gonna be working on? And they'll, like last year they said, dual use, dual use was a big mm -hmm. topic. Mm -hmm. And so my students did research to try to investigate what is the dual use on campus and then also build some, create some recommendations that we could pass on to the health promotion folks about, well, how could you address this issue with students? Um, and so we've done so many issues with them, uh, better sleep, better mental health, dual use, condom use, um, gosh, I, I'd probably like 10 more, um, so <laughs> many. And, um, and then we're also doing research together. So they started, uh, campaign called um, Protection Connection, where, I don't know if you've noticed them, but uh, the EMU has two um, sexual health supply dispensers, the rec center has one, and there's also a sexual health supply delivery service that just started just this last January, so it's very mm -hmm. new, um, with the dorms where students can kind of anonymously, well not confidentially, order sexual health supplies that'll get sent to them. Um, and so in hopes that providing greater access to these will lead to more use of these, it's actually built on a campaign that a friend of mine did for her dissertation at UNC. Um, and so I'm, I'm helping with that research as well in terms of evaluating it and advising it. And it's just a great partnership and mm -hmm. it's really fulfilling to feel like, oh, I'm doing research, but also it's being applied like in real time. 
So you, you've talked uh, pretty extensively about the variety of um, health communications research you do, but you're, you've also done research uh, related to public transit. Yes. So how did you get <laughs> to that? Know. Yeah, so actually um, that started through another connection. Someone originally said, hey, can you, we want to do a campaign, can you just consult for us, just, just do a little bit of work, but that's just hard to actually fit my work ethic. It's hard for me to just do a little bit of work, so I just ended up kind of wedging in there, and then all of a sudden I was applying for my own grant. <laughs> but um, it actually has public health ramifications as well, so I find it to be really interesting because I'm also, I'm interested in environmental communication, but that's not an air, my main area, um, public health and public health promotion communication is. Um, but this is where there's sort of some intersection. I'm also working with someone who's an expert in environmental communication. But um, so uh, traffic fatalities are the main cause of death for in the US for people 10 to 24 years old. And there's been some really great research um, analyzing cities that have better transit access and, and more teens using that transit actually have lower fatality rates, traffic fatality rates. Mm. And 75% um, of the accidents that teens get into involve another car. So if we can get more teens to ride transit, it has a direct, like, really crucial benefit um, of re hopefully reducing traffic fatalities among that population, but even outside of that population, the other cars that they're getting in these accidents with. Mm -hmm. um, so that that was kind of the motivation behind there. And then we worked with Portland to kind of study like what would help motivate teens to ride transit and exciting, but just this week, I actually met with representatives from the Eugene, Springfield, and Bethel school districts and, and Lane Transit District um, and the, some others about how we might do some of that research locally um, because uh, local teens are going to be able to get K through 12 is going to be able to get a free transit pass starting in the fall and so we want to do some work for how we can best promote the use of that and hopefully make a real difference. So I, when in terms of the Portland part of the project what what are some of the strategies that you determined would effectively impact the way uh, young people relate to public transit? Yeah so um, Really, really interesting. Um, one thing we found out was what wouldn't work, which yeah. was which was important, because um, originally working with some of the uh, partner transportation partners up there, they had wanted they thought perhaps a text campaign to mm -hmm. teens, getting them to sort of opt into these text messages. We found out absolutely not. Teens are not going to they're not going to do that. Um, and what what we also found out is you might want to target the parents mm -hmm. more directly. Mm -hmm. um, but messages about autonomy and how this will give them better freedom of choice, so they don't have to sit around waiting for their parents to give them a ride or hear their parents or watch their parents roll their eyes while they're waiting, you know, asking for a ride. They can just go and do and see. So the autonomy messages were definitely, um, seemed to be the most impactful for teens and promoting like that aspect of, um, and we looked at transit use, but also walking and biking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you said that the texts didn't do the job. So what, what is the medium that you use? What, what did you find is the most effective medium to communicate with, with the youth about this? Yeah, so the research suggested that um, they are looking at the transit page. So you could have like ads or messages right on it the, because they're checking the bus when they go. They have to check the bus right, schedules. Right, right, right. They're sitting at the bus stop. So posters at the bus stops mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. would be effective. So those sort of like where they're at and when they're thinking about this types of stuff would be good. and. There seemed to be some indication that perhaps parents might be interested in some of this text information, um, but we need to follow up with some more research to mm -hmm. confirm that. Yeah, that could be complicated. 
Yeah. I mean, the yeah. relationship with the parents is complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, you've already made very clear that teaching is really important to you and that your own experience as a student uh, impacted you. So tell us, tell us about one of the classes that you teach. Well, um, I often, the class I teach the most often is research methods. Um, it's an, for strategic research methods. It's required for public relations majors, but I often get ad majors or psych majors, business majors take it as well. Um, and in that class, we do a real, um, it's very uh, high workload class, I feel like, but we, we actually, the students work typically with the Office of Health Promotions on an issue, and we do surveys with students. Mm -hmm. Last year, last time I taught it, we collected 500 uh, surveys from 500 students about condom use and almost 1,000 surveys about dual use. Mm. Um, and they do focus groups, they do interviews, um, we do user testing where they actually look at a website or an app and they have um, people come in and sort of try to do things on that website and figure out like what are the things that are going wrong, like what's the message this is sending me. We do a content analysis where we're looking at um, Twitter feeds and sort of what are the messages um, being promoted in these Twitter feeds and the strategies in the messages that might lead to like more engagement, likes and retweets. Um, so we do all of that in 10 weeks, and um, but it's great, it's so fun. And students, I think um, when they first, it's a required course for PR majors, doing research isn't um, top of their exciting yeah, list, sure, I would say. There's yeah. a bit of a, um, they are not, they think it's gonna be boring. Um, and I think I'd make it come alive for them. I, I think, I, I feel like I hear that from students and by the end, um, like I ha actually have a meeting later today with a student who was in my class and now she wants to do a survey again for some another project she's working on and she wants to just kind of check in with me about best practices and I love that so much. I love, <laughs> I love when I hear them like, oh, we're doing this other research after class. I just like, oh, just makes me so happy. <laughs> Can I ask you, what, what did you find about dual use when you have these a thousand responses? What did, what did, you, what did we learn? Well, it is, um, it's, the majority of students in our survey, which wasn't a random sample, but it was a large sample, um, are dueling, um, not necessarily every you know 10 minutes, but sometimes um, that it's has pretty high um, acceptability rates. People don't see much wrong with it. There's very little understanding about the nicotine that's actually in a Juul cigarette. Mm -hmm. There's like this assumption that it's actually in a way a good thing. It's either they used to smoke and now they jewel, or it's preventing them from becoming a smoker. Um, and in the focus groups, so the surveys kind of said a lot of that, and in the focus groups in particular, it just seemed like it's gonna be a very tough issue mm -hmm. to reverse. Mm -hmm. um, and I know the FDA and others, and I know it even go, going down to middle school age, um, it, it's definitely an issue I'd like to continue working on. It's gonna be just as hard as tobacco was to actually make some progress on, it's gonna be a decades long fight, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So um, what attracted you to the University of Oregon? Why'd you decide to come here? Well, um, I'm from the Northwest, I'm from Washington State, so I've obviously known about um, UO for you know a long time. Um, and I, after grad school, I was at a university in Texas and I had two friends from grad school that were here and, you know, of course we all talk still and, and they were just saying all these innovative things they were sort of allowed to do in their teaching and, and the support for research and the autonomy that they had. And, and I loved where I was as well, um, but I just felt like, wow, Oregon seems like a place that, um, you know, 
anything could be possible in some ways, you know, <laughs> and I, I could really just do the research that excited me that there'd be a lot of support. And I was excited too about um, sort of the freedom that they give you and then the encouragement really to uh, put experiential opportunities into your teaching. So like I said, with my research class, we don't just learn survey best practices. We, everything we learn, we do. Um, and I, and that's really encouraged, at least in my school, um, to like, you know, get their hands dirty, sort of do the, and I like that. That's my style for sure. Hmm. So um, you and your colleague, Jesse Abendor, Abenauer <laughs> are recipients of a 2019 Faculty Research Award. Tell us about that project. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, we've been actually talking about this for over a year, so it was great that we like sort of put it down on paper, and I can't wait to start really collecting the data. But Jesse's background is as a journalist, and so he's used to creating very objective communication, not sort of with the purpose to persuade anyone. And I come from a very sort of promotional, persuasive background. Mm -hmm. um, and he um, is a lifelong athlete and has and got very interested in a boxer, actually. So he's very interested in the concussion issue. Mm. And obviously, I'm interested in all kinds of health issues. So we, and I often will do things with narratives and mm -hmm. storytelling, mm -hmm. um, which is a journalistic practice as well. And so we thought, let's come together and sort of put our strengths together. He's, we want to look at how journalists tell the stories of concussion and how that impacts people's sort of understanding of the science of, con of concussion, trust, which is a big issue over in the J school right now, sort of trust of the information, mm -hmm. and then sort of learning from it and also um, their intentions to allow their child or themselves or significant other to participate in activities that might have a higher risk of concussion. So we're sort of, and then eventually, so we'd like to build some theory around that about how narratives operate in that science space, mm -hmm. but then also give some advice to journalists about, hey, if, you, if you're covering concussion this way, this is how it may affect your audiences. If you talk about it like this, this is the types of understanding that they could walk away with. So. Um, it's kind of got a, a lot of, it's kind of got something for both of us and it's a great partnership, yeah. <laughs> um, so we've just got a couple of minutes left. This will probably be my last question. So um, t do you have like, obviously you're, you do so many things, but is there a new project or a project that's approaching you that you're interested in that you want to say a little bit about? Well, um, uh, we in the School of Journalism also have a Portland campus, mm -hmm. and we just opened a VR lab oh, uh, wow. in that Portland. Oh, I know, you've gotta go see it, Paul, <laughs> and you've gotta interview them up there. Um, and anyways, I took a tour of it and just realized, oh my gosh, the possibilities here. Huh. Um, and so I don't have a specific project in mind. I have about 20 projects in mind, but I am working with the VR expert and some gaming experts on deciding something we might be able to do with VR and health. Um, and so that that's something I definitely see myself picking up um, in the next year or so is is trying to figure out like where what I can do in that space because do I you think have that's any exciting. Like, suspicions about it? Oh, oh, well, I think um, as someone who does a lot with narratives and how mm -hmm. narratives can help be like a proxy for direct experience, I think virtual reality will operate in that same sort of psychological space where um, it will help be a proxy for direct experience. So um, when so they may not be able to experience a certain health issue or an outcome, but they can in virtual reality. And when you have direct experience with something, that is very powerful 
um, in terms of influencing your attitudes about it and the decisions that you make around that. So um, I think it's gonna be potentially a really powerful tool for health educators and health promoters. Um, and I, I have so many ideas, Paul, I, but I know I've got to narrow them down, so I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Well, Autumn, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today uh, about all the work that you're engaged with and all the exciting uh, research that you do with your undergrads. Um, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been so nice talking with you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Autumn Schaefer, Assistant Professor of Public Relations in the UO School of Journalism and Communications. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>